Hello, listeners. In this episode of Capital Calls, we welcome Andrew Axelrod, Managing Partner and Portfolio Manager at Axar Capital, whose PE fund strategy focuses on turnaround and distressed investments in the North American middle market. This is an extremely timely interview in light of ongoing macroeconomic events. So enjoy this conversation with our host, Lucas Lim. As a reminder, this is our publicly available interview. The full interview is accessible to accredited investors who are members on Palico. So Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be with you and talk to you. Perfect, perfect. Well, um, let's dive right into it. The topic today is distressed credit and special situations, what you focus on at Axar Capital. And I just want to start off by asking you, in this environment right now, with high inflation, you know, monetary tightening, and um, you know, a lot of uncertainty in general in the public markets, how has that impacted the opportunity set for distressed and special situations? Thanks for having me. So I think the macro environment to me is a, is, is a known known at this point. I think we can all see what's happening in terms of inflation and Fed tightening and interest rates going up. And what you've had in the first six months of the year is about 150 to 200 basis points rise in the risk-free rate. So whether you're looking at the 10-year treasury curve or you're looking at three-month LIBOR, you're up about one and a half to 2%. On top of that, in leveraged credit, spreads have increased you know, around 200 basis points. So you've had this three and a half, four percent 4% increase in the cost of debt in the market. And we've seen it across the board. We've seen it in the high-yield market. We've seen it in the leveraged loan market. And so as a result of that, if you think about where we were six months ago to where we are today... The cost of borrowing for leveraged issuers, for leveraged companies, has gone up anywhere from 50 to 75%. So the actual interest expense, and I like to really you know, get down into the micro level of what's happening inside co- leveraged companies, which is what we focus on, the actual interest expense for those companies has gone up that 50% plus, or it will as their maturities roll over. Many of these companies have fixed rate debt, so they've got some time, but the average duration in the high yield market and the fixed rate market is about three years. So maturities are starting to roll. A lot of companies tap the leveraged loan market, which is a floating rate market. So most of that debt has already reset. And so you have this dynamic where the actual interest expense every quarter for many of these companies has gone up dramatically. Now there's the potential that they could grow into it. Cash flow could grow enough to support higher interest costs. But if cash flow doesn't grow, and we had a very tight lending market to start with, many issuers were sitting at you know one times debt service coverage, meaning their cash flow could barely cover their interest expense to start. Now interest expense has gone up a lot. It's gone up this 50 to 75%. So you have a lot of companies who are negative free cash flow as a result. And they might have come into this negative free cash flow. And now they've gotten deeper in the hole. You need growth. You need to cut CapEx, capital spending. You need to cut costs. And we're seeing all of those things across the board as a reaction to this. But I think when as the dust starts to settle, there are no question be issuers that just won't be able to grow or cut costs, cut expenses to support these higher interest costs. And you'll see defaults. You'll see deleveraging. At the core, if interest expense has gone up 50% and cash flow is flat, that means we need, we, we need 50% deleveraging. And it won't be that. It won't be that extreme because companies will be able to make adjustments. But we think that deleveraging could be quite significant to bring the markets back into equilibrium, to bring corporate issuers, high-yield and leveraged loan issuers back into a place uh, where they can support uh, their interest expense. And I think that's what you've seen, in particularly in the high-yield market and in the leveraged credit markets. You've seen a sell-off. You've seen the high-yield market down you know, in a 13 15% drawdown in six months, which is, which is fairly significant. And I think that's starting to price in the market's expectations of higher defaults. And that's where 
we come in where we have a specialized skill set to help these borrowers delever, be a solution provider, both purchase debt, provide capital to allow for this deleveraging process. Great, great. So thank you for painting that broad picture of the market. And, um, you know, I think with this opportunity set opening up, there's a lot of people might expect, okay, a lot of players to kind of come in and try to take advantage of this opportunity. And anyone from, you know, private credit funds to, you know, credit focused hedge funds, you know, there might be the expectation that there's a lot of competition in the space and that it will, um, you know, very soon get crowded. What's your view on that? And how is Axar, you know, uniquely positioned? to do this relative to, you know, some of those other players. Absolutely. And, and I agree with it with, you know, the general comment, there's definitely competition. There's definitely a historical track record of in default cycles. There's a money-making opportunity for distressed investors. And over the last, you know, since the late eighties, over the last 30 plus years, we've had a handful of default cycles and they've been good, good investing opportunities for distressed investors. So what we like to do is Go to places in the market, focus on areas where there's less competition. And in particular for us, where we found that air pocket, where we found a better competitive dynamic, a better supply-demand balance of opportunity versus capital is in the lower middle market. And what we define as lower middle market is generally companies with $750 million of debt or less. And in that sub-billion dollar debt structures, that's actually about 90% of the issuers. So you have this situation where there's many, many companies, the volume is lower. So the ability to deploy substantial amounts of capital in some of these situations is much lower. And as a result of that, the large pools of capital, the large players, the many brand name firms in this space, who everyone knows and has had a lot of historical success, their pools of capital are too substantial to justify going into the lower middle market. So we rarely, I would say almost never bump into those firms. We'll get some crossover players, some hedge funds and other investors who might come in and poke around. But what we find is they're very transitory. They're looking for a trade versus our approach, which is long-term in nature. So we're you know, looking to hold investments from at least three years, oftentimes five or six years, go through the deleveraging process, the restructuring process, which can take a couple of years from the time we're first purchasing the debt on a distressed basis to getting into a chapter 11 through the chapter 11, exiting the bankruptcy and ultimately getting to a sale of a company, that could be a couple year process. So you have to be committed. You have to have the staying power. And we find there's, there's very few investors willing to do that in the lower middle market. And there's a lot of companies to pick through. Our strategy is very concentrated. So we're looking for two to four new investments a year. So we'll look at a lot of situations to find those two to four opportunities. But what we can find is as we isolate those opportunities, as we get in and we can start buying up some of the distressed debt, that oftentimes will keep out any other players, you know, as they realize that an investor like us is around the situation. And you know, if you looked at our historical track record, what we've done over the last seven years, 85, 90% of the situations we're involved in do not have another distressed player. So I think our historical experience speaks to where we see the opportunity that we can find these air pockets and we'll end up in situations with vanilla CLO managers and mutual funds and other holders of the debt will be forced to come along for the ride in a lot of instances, but we're not in, in a bankruptcy with three or four other distressed players dealing with lender on lender violence and some of these other things that go on in the larger part of the market. There's certainly other challenges. We can maybe talk about those in a bit, there's other challenges in that lower middle market, but we find competition is really favorable. Right. So I think 
within this broader framework, uh, what are some specific investment themes that Axar is focused right now in the um, in the lower middle market space? Absolutely. So I would say one place we're definitely focused, which is maybe less specific to the market, but more specific to our own historical experience is in financial services, where we had a lot of historical experience, a lot of historical success. And so that's definitely an area that we're very active in. We've got a lot of relationships. It comes in a lot of different forms. It could be specialty finance, like a J.G. Wentworth. It could be real estate finance. We've done a lot over the years, particularly in the 09-10 cycle. It could be you know, regular way financial services. And there we see a good pipeline. We see levered issuers. They're complicated, nuanced businesses. But oftentimes, they, they can really play to our style of investing, which is a lot of downside protection. There's real balance sheet assets that we can look to, significant liquidation value. And we can oftentimes invest inside a liquidation value with a real equity tail, with a real upside to being able to restructure the business and turn it around. Not all financial services businesses can go through a chapter 11. So you have to be experienced and careful with regulatory aspects that can be you know, very damaging if you get it wrong in a chapter 11. But again, we, we find a lot of places in financial services where we can find that downside protection, find that liquidation value, but then have a real catalyst and a path to substantial upside. And that would be kind of one that I think fairly acts are specific in terms of our skill set. Other places... Uh, that we're finding opportunity that are maybe more specific to this cycle. Certainly in the convertible bond market, we've seen just real decimation in the convertible bond market, primarily growth-oriented companies that got public and then issued converts. And we're seeing you know, many of those converts have traded down 50 to 80% this year. And there's a rotation going on in where those distressed convertible bonds are leaving traditional growth equity hands that were playing growth equity through the convertible bond market into distressed hands. And that transition creates volatility. Volatility is our friend. We love when there's gap down moves in the credit markets that we can take advantage of. And so you have that rotation going on right now. The other thing I like about that market is they're often small issues. So you don't see billion, you know, there's, there's a few large issuers, the Pelotons of the world that, that are household names that people know, but most of that market is 100, 200, $300 million converts. And so that plays to our strengths as well. The small issues, the small size that will keep out competition as we were as we were talking about earlier. So that's definitely an area, an area we're active. And then, you know, if you look at our pipeline, the other big place that you'd see a lot of names is repeat situations. Uh, so we've got a, you know, a few on there, which are you know, some of the ones I, I enjoy the most where we've been invested in the company or we've been invested in a direct competitor in the 15, 16 cycle or in the nine, 10 cycle. And, you know, we've, we've got one we're active with right now where, we invested in nine and 10, the CFO at the times, now the CEO, we know the business incredibly well. We've got one on our pipeline that if we, we haven't pulled the trigger yet, but if we end up buying the debt, it'll be the third time uh, in my career that we've bought distressed debt in this company. And so those, those can be a lot of fun because you know them inside and out. You'd, you'd often know a lot of the, the players from a management perspective. And we certainly like things that rhyme where we've got you know, pattern recognition and historical experience to take advantage of. And then there's always the one-offs. There's just this sort of, you know, the bad LBO where, you know, just over, over middle market private equity firm overpaid, over levered. You know, we'll always catch a few of those when you get a pickup in volatility and a pickup in the distress cycle. You'll always get a few that'll just kind of fall in our lap. We've got a handful of those on the, on the pipeline as well. And I just want to pick up on a, a couple of points that you mentioned, you know, as you're going through some of these investment themes, the first being 
Your last point about how a lot of these companies have taken on a lot of debt, a lot of these sponsor-owned companies, I should mention, have taken on a lot of debt. And also um, the example of J.G. Wentworth, which, you know, for our listeners' benefit, uh, you know, was a company that was under sponsor ownership and, uh, you know, made a lot of suboptimal management decisions, um, you know, while they were under ownership by a PE firm. So, you know, it begs the question, what role has PE played uh, and the PE activity that we've seen over the last few years played in opening up this opportunity set? And would it even be fair to say that, um, you know, there's been a PE hangover leading to the distressed opportunity set that we're seeing today? I think it's a fair characterization. I think PE, if we look at our pipeline, look at things we're working on right now, you know, middle market, private equity backed companies are probably at least two thirds of things we're, we're working on where we see distress and distress. So there's no question it's been a big contributor. But if, if, if you take a step back and I don't, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to throw stones at private equity. I think the track record speaks for itself and there's been a lot of success in private equity. It's been a good place to invest. And I think there's a lot of merits, you know, particularly around the governance structure. And we'll, in other parts of our strategy, we'll be involved with public companies. And, you know, there, there's oftentimes a real dichotomy in terms of the governance structure with a private equity backed company and a, and a public company, uh, particularly when there's, when there's trouble. Uh, so there's certain things private equity does very well, but like any good idea and good performance, I think it gets, you know, has gotten taken a bit far uh, or a bit too far in that, you know, the amount of capital that's flown into the space. And it's found homes in probably hands that maybe it shouldn't have or not to the same size that it did. So you have very strong players, great track record. I can't think of the last time I was looking at a company backed by a sponsor like Hellman and Freeman. You know, very good sponsor, great track record. We just don't see a lot of distress in their portfolio. I wish we did. But then you have other sponsors who are less experienced, have done less well maybe didn't have access to the deal flow. Uh, so they ended up in the secondary tertiary deals that maybe some of the blue chip sponsors passed on, but to put capital to work, they chased down those companies. And as a result of that, you've got a cohort of, I think what we'll see is the 2016 to 2020, 2021 vintage middle market private equity deals. We're going to see a cohort default. And that absolutely is a, is a tailwind for our strategy. And working through those companies, and you, you mentioned management and what we find, and you know Wentworth's a, a good example. But what we'll find from time to time is you have a situation where maybe a sponsor overpaid a bit. As a result, they overlevered. Company's not doing as well as expected. Now, at that point, there's often we find, with the benefit of hindsight, because we're we're cleaning up the mess to some degree. There's an inflection point where you can make a decision to you know what I'll describe as hunker down, defend. Try to get as much of your equity back as you can. And some sponsors will do that and make the right decision. And instead of just looking and saying, it's not going as well as I thought, it's got to be the CEO's fault. It's got to be management's fault. Let's throw everybody out. Let's change the team. Let's drop in you know, a bunch of consultants to run the business, that sort of thing. Instead of doing that, you hunker down and you try to defend the position. What we'll often find though is what I just described, where management gets blamed. Some of our most successful investments have been owner, operators, founders who have sold business to private equity, did a good job selling the story, got the sponsor to overpay, which was their job as the seller. And then when it doesn't go so well, they get thrown out. And in a number of situations, we've partnered with those individuals. They've come back in, they've invested side by side with us, come back to, to run the company. We've had some great success doing that, uh, where we can delever, bring back a previous management team or previous owner in partnership. And a lot of times, you know, it's just a matter of 
purchase price and basis can change everything around strategy. You need a business plan that's going to you know, generate a 20% IRR at $100 of cost versus I need a business plan that's going to generate a 20 or 25% IRR at 50 cents of cost. Those are very different business plans and they can have varying degrees of risk and, and our business plan at a much lower basis can be a much simpler, uh, much easier execution for that individual versus if you overpay for business to have, you know, to have a successful investment, oftentimes we'll see, we'll see these sponsors try to try to force the business to do something unnatural or do something that it's really not capable of doing from an earnings and cash flow standpoint. And, and that creates more problems. You know, that ends up making a, what, what I describe as a tough situation, it can make it worse and make it really difficult. And that creates the opportunity for us. And we can come in and delever, clean things up, go back to the future uh, to some degree, bring back former management, bring back prior strategy to get the business back on, on better footing. When that happens and the business is going through a tough time, we find a lot of enthusiasm in, in the employment base uh, when you sort of bring back leadership from better days. And that can be a real shot in the arm for, for some of these businesses when that happens. Indeed, indeed. And um, no, I think it's, uh, you know, we should never overlook, I think, the importance of solid management and management decisions, um, you know, in guiding these companies along the way. In the middle market, you really can't underestimate how important executive leadership is and how important that, you know, for us, we really focus on the CEO. We then let our CEOs build their teams. Uh, so you'll never see me interviewing the third, fourth, fifth person on the org chart. That's not our strategy. It's really finding a CEO partner. And sometimes it's existing management. It's not that we change management in every instance. Sometimes it's just an overlevered balance sheet, difficult period. You've got the right, the right leadership. And it's just a matter of deleveraging the company and allowing you know, the company to get through a cyclical period or a downturn. But then other times it's, it's bringing in different leadership. And, and for us, it really starts and stops with that CEO partner. This was our publicly available portion of our interview with Andrew Axelrod, Managing Partner and Portfolio Manager at Axar Capital. The rest of the interview is exclusive to accredited investors who are members of Palico. The extended version covers the impact of recent macroeconomic factors on Axar's investment proposition, Axar's investment selection approach, and their fund returns expectations. If you are an accredited investor, you can join Palico for free and listen to the rest of the conversation and other exclusive content like this. Head over to palico.com to apply. Palico is the leading tech platform where LPs from single family offices to large pension funds can discover and connect with PE funds on the primary market and where they can divest PE fund interest on the secondary market.